How long do I have again? Well, 20 minutes or so. 20 minutes or so. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, hello everybody, and uh, thanks for coming. And uh, let's uh, just start our time in prayer. Lord, um, your spirit is truth, and we come to you looking for the truth because we know that the truth will set us free. And uh, we come to your word because um, in your word uh, you've revealed your truth to us. And so I pray that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so um, last week I was uh, down in the States at a different church, and I spoke on liberalism. And I had a different topic for today, uh, but uh, last night uh, Matt was over at our house, and he said, why don't you speak on that again? And so uh, it's Matt's fault that uh, we're speaking on liberalism today. It's also... Uh, <laughs> Um, it's great to recycle a sermon because it's less work for me and I put a lot of work into this and so it seemed like a good idea to um, to speak on it again so um, who here has heard somebody say he is a liberal um, so when I when I say that I'm not speaking about Justin Trudeau in the political liberals uh, but in the context of the church who has heard somebody say so-and-so is a liberal or that church is going in a liberal direction, or that school has, is going on in a liberal direction. Has anybody heard that before? Not everybody in the room, but some people are giving very vigorous nods that uh, sometimes we hear this, that somebody is going liberal. Um, and we, it's something that we say often, but we often don't exactly know what it means. And sometimes that, that not knowing what liberalism is adds to the, um, the passion or, or the, uh, the energy that we put behind it. It's almost the boogeyman that we don't know who it is, what it is, and that makes it more scary. So I want to talk a little bit about what is Christian liberalism. Again, not political liberalism, but what is liberalism within the context of, of the Christian religion. Uh, and then what is true Christianity? What is the real deal? What is true, uh, the, the real gospel? So I want to start this, this off, if I can, with a little bit of introspection and talking about a time in my life when I was basically liberal, when I was basically very interested in other ideas. Uh, it was a, a time in my life I was quite young. I just finished Bible school uh, and was just starting seminary. Um, and I had the first experience of being an associate pastor and in a, a very small church or an elder or something. My title was not well-defined. Um, and after about eight months, uh, it didn't work out. I had to leave that church. Um, it was basically amicable on both sides, but I really felt like a failure. I felt like I had let the church down, let myself down. I couldn't do it. Why do I mention that? Because it, it led to a time when I felt very hurt by the church, by myself. I felt let down. And pain was a real part of, of my journey for the next year. Also, I was really interested by a lot of ideas I was seeing in seminary. Uh, a lot of new ideas, new professors, new books being written. And I was very uh, turned off and disgusted by some of the things I saw in the church and in my own heart. Um, legalism, 
uh, just following the rules, only intellectual religion that didn't seem to come out in people's lives and in their hearts. And so at that time, uh, there were a bunch of us, um, kind of Gen Generation X people that age, that were kind of going through the same thing at the same time, and we called ourselves Emergent. And uh, I wrote this poem and posted it on my blog uh, as kind of my declaration that I too was Emergent. The poem goes like this. Uh, just, and just so you understand, for me, the church that I grew up in felt like, like a casket, like a coffin. Gentle voices, kindest hands, have raised a casket made by man. Men who've been there, men who fight, men with scars who know what is right. Between these walls and roof and lid, 10,000 young they've safely hid. Hid from troubles, hid from strife, hid from poisons, safe from life. Until we rise, anemic few, to seek the light to blossom through. Climb through rubble, climb through loss, climb for faith and climb for cause. We are emergent, scared to be. We are not perfect, but we are free. And I wrote this, and this was kind of my, my I want to say coming out, but that has another significance now. Uh, but my declaration that I was done with institutional religion. I was very interested in Jesus. I wanted to just read what Jesus had to say, the red letters in the Bible. But I didn't want people telling me what to do. I didn't want to be defining my religion by a building. Uh, I didn't want to... Um, be part of institutional religion. And um, this went on for a number of months, about eight months, until some really difficult questions started pushing me back towards the faith of my childhood. Specifically, what actually is truth? What is truth? It's exciting when you're a young person to say, there is no truth, I can do whatever I want. And that is exciting for a short period of time until you realize, actually, we need truth. We need to know what is true and what is false. If there is no true, if there is no truth, then the only way to, to end a dispute is who has the biggest gun, who has the biggest club. If there is no truth, then might makes right. Truth is the ultimate equalizer. Because somebody with no money, no power, can be right. And if there is truth, then we are all equal. How do I know what God wants if I'm not using the Bible as an authority? If I still believed in Jesus. I still believed in God. But if I was throwing out the church and I was throwing out the Bible, how was I supposed to know who God was, what God wanted of me? And the one that really became pressing for me was how do I raise children without the church, without the Bible? without community, because I had a very young son at the time, and I was realizing very soon I'm going to have to figure out how to teach this child to love Jesus as I do, and I realized the reason I love Jesus is because I was raised in the church. And I had to ask myself this question, is Jesus really Lord of my life? Is Jesus really Lord of my life, or am I Lord of my life? And I had to ask myself, what does it mean to say Jesus is Lord of my life. And I want to come back to that at the end of the sermon. 
But this propelled me on a, uh, well, it, I was already on a journey trying to figure stuff out. But this was a turning point where I said, okay, I think the answer is actually back in institutional religion, so to speak. I need to go back to the church and try and figure this thing out. And what I eventually realized is that the key to this lied, lay in understanding what is liberalism and what is true Christianity. And so I want to talk for a little bit about what I discovered about what liberalism is. Because this is what, as I went to seminary, was really um, confusing me, really pulling me in a certain direction. Yes, I had my own journey as well, but I was very pulled by liberalism. So we got two definitions of liberalism here, actually three. The first definition is, liberalism is Christianity studied from the outside looking in. Liberalism is Christianity, uh, is Christianity studied from the outside looking in. So this is the same way if you were studying Islam, for example, or the Sikh religion, or uh, Buddhism, not actually believing in that religion, but wanting to be informed about world religions, you would study it from the outside looking in. Now, let me ask you this question. What is the first thing that would change? Don't look at your notes from the perspective of studying the religion from the inside or from the outside? What do you think is the first thing that would be different? You'd get it. Hmm? <laughs> what? You'd get it. I mean, I mean, in terms of what I understand Christianity from the inside, and I talk to people who are looking from the outside, they think that things that I think are bizarre, even though to me they seem perfectly logical. So, I get it. <laughs> For sure, you, you wouldn't get it from the outside looking in. I think that's probably true of any religion, mm -hmm. that there's things that make sense on the inside that don't make sense on the outside. Mm -hmm. What I have in your notes, which isn't the only answer, but what I have as the primary thing is that you deny the miracles. So if you're studying... Um, Islam, for example, from the outside looking in, you wouldn't actually believe that the Quran is, is revealed from God or that Muhammad ascended and, and uh, came back on the Dome of the Rock. You would say, well, I'm studying this as, as a world religion and you're going to find naturalistic explanations for all the miracles within that religion. And that's just a normal way of studying a religion. Um, and this might be information for you or it might not. But there are thousands and thousands of people studying the Christian religion right now from the perspective of being on the outside looking in. And the main thing they're going to do is deny any of the miracles happened. And they're just trying to understand what, what is this, this social human thing called Christianity without any of the miracles actually happening. So as you can imagine... Uh, this changes things drastically. This changes the religion. This changes what they're seeing. Because they're, from the beginning, they have an a priori assumption that miracles don't happen. Um, and so when they come to something like Moses parting the Red Sea, they're going to say, well, this is an interesting story. Where did the story come from? And they're going to try and figure out where the story came from while ruling out from the beginning that possibly this actually happened. It couldn't have happened because it's a miracle. So, there is a good side to this sort of scholarship. It's not all bad. The good side of it is that it provides objective information about Christianity. 
It's not just Christians studying Christianity. There's people from the outside looking in, studying it. And so when you learn how to use that information, you can actually take that information and use it to defend Christianity, uh, which I do through apologetics, and that would be another sermon. Uh, but there are certain facts that are established about Christianity that everybody knows, that everybody has agreed on, um, from, because people are studying Christianity from the outside. The bad side of this, of course, is that it denies miracles, and this sort of scholarship is very often used to discredit Christianity, uh, real Christianity that does believe in miracles. Um, something that a lot of young Christians do when they find faith is to go and take a few classes in a university in the religion department, and it's the worst thing they could possibly do for their faith. Because these are people that are studying the religion from the outside, looking in from the, for the most part, denying the miracles, and trying to explain it as a human phenomenon. And uh, that often is very toxic to a young faith. Um, should we be worried about this sort of academic liberalism? Yes and no. We need to know it exists. We need to know how it works, how it functions. When we know how it functions, we can actually use it very well. Um, when we understand that they deny miracles as a starting point, like a huge amount of the problems just disappear. They're just explaining the same thing, but from a different starting point. Uh, there are some, some issues that arise from this as people are studying our religion, um, which is why we, do, we need scholars to go into that field to do the hard work of really digging through the historical information. Uh, we need Christian scholars uh, to engage with, with this field. Um, but it's not, uh, it's not the boogeyman. Um, there is a, another sort of liberalism. And I, what happened to that? There was supposed to be a second definition, a whole... Okay, sorry, your book is a little bit out of order here. Mine is. I don't know if yours is. Okay, just my book is out of order. Definition number two. Liberalism is a form of Christianity that denies miracles. So now this idea of denying miracles comes into the church. Did you know that there's actually Christians that don't believe miracles happen? There's actually a lot of Christians that don't believe miracles happen. Uh, there's a whole movement of Christianity um, that has gained traction, that has actually taken over whole seminaries, whole denominations of the church that doesn't believe miracles happen. Um, according to J. Gresham Machen, uh, some of you have, um, okay, J. Gershom Mason wrote uh, a book called Christianity and Liberalism in which he really laid out the difference between liberalism and uh, Christianity. And he says, at the root, um, the tension between liberalism and Christianity comes down to, do you believe in miracles or not? And that these two trees, the tree of liberalism and the tree of Christianity, grow side by side, and the branches often interlock, and you have people going back and forth. You know, I, meant, I started off by talking about a time when I was somewhat liberal, and I was kind of going back and forth. And, and, and there's people that kind of build their faith kind of a hodgepodge between the two, and it's hard to know exactly where some people fit. But at the root, one religion believes in miracles, the other does not, and that is the difference. So what happens to Christianity if you don't believe in miracles? Well, fundamentally, Christianity is a... The Muslims call us the people of the book because we're focused on the Bible. We're focused on 
the Old Testament, the New Testament, the revelation that God has communicated to us. But if miracles don't happen, then God didn't speak his word to people. It's just human people that had nice ideas about what God might be. And so the Bible ceases to be the definitive source of information about God. It's just a nice way to, to maybe encourage us to have good feelings or good actions. The Bible does not pr transmit propositional information. Let me just stop for a second to tell you what a proposition is. A proposition is the information that is communicated through a sentence. I could say, um, this is, what is this? A pedestal? A, a, this is a pulpit. A pulpit this is. Um, here is a pulpit. There is a pulpit before me. So what I have said has changed in every sentence. The words are different. But the information communicated is the same. Um, and this is the idea that I have communicated a proposition. This is a pulpit. You all understand this is a pulpit. Okay? Pulpit. <laughs> the idea that Christ Christians have always believed that the Bible is communicating propositional information. That God has ideas and he communicated them to prophets and he communicated them directly to people. And now those people are writing them so that those ideas can now be understood by us. That's propositional information. And the way that they say it is different, sometimes they use poems, sometimes they use stories, sometimes they use history. Um, there's all sorts of different genres in the Bible, but the ideas of God are somehow coming through to us. And there are, there's propositional revelation. But if miracles don't happen, there, aren't, there is no propositional revelation. There are no ideas of God that are being transmitted to us. So what does the Bible ultimately become about? Friedrich Schleiermacher said that Christianity is ultimately about the feeling of absolute dependence. The feeling of absolute dependence. He is called the father of modern liberalism. And he said the, the Christian religion isn't about believing a certain set of doctrines. It's about feeling. When you walk out in nature and you, and you smell the air and you look at the sky and you just say, wow, God, you're amazing. That's true religion for Schleiermacher. It's a feeling. And the Bible can lead us to this feeling. Other holy books can lead us to this feeling. And this feeling should lead us to right behavior. So it's about feelings and doing the right thing. Feelings and actions. So what happens to God? Well, we don't really know much about God anymore because he's not revealing himself. Um, we can learn about him from other religions and from nature as well. It's not just the Bible that teaches us about God. And let's just assume he's a kind father in the sky that kind of loves us all. Um, we don't really have any way of saying that, but let's just assume that as a starting point. What about Jesus? Well, he's not born of a virgin because that would be a miracle. He didn't rise from the dead because that would be a miracle. Therefore, he's not God and he can't save us. But he was a good moral teacher, wasn't he? And in reading about his life, we have these great religious feelings and also we're motivated to do good things. So certainly Jesus is very important to a liberal. What is salvation? Well, Jesus certainly was not killed for our sins. That's barbaric and outdated. Also unjust. How could one person be killed for somebody else's sins? But he was a good example for us to follow. 
And so again, salvation is about doing good things, having good works, and you know, having good religious feelings. And missions really is a waste of time because Jesus is, is great, but you know, the Buddhists have Buddha and the Muslims have Muhammad and everybody has a great teacher in their religion. Um, and so we don't need to try and impress our religion on other people, would say a liberal. Heaven and hell, we have no information about heaven and hell because scriptures don't speak to us. Uh, but perhaps they're spiritual realities. And because we love Jesus so much and know that God is a kind father in the sky, or at least we think he is, probably everybody goes to the good place. And basically, again, religion comes down to ethics, uh, being kind, humble, and good. But somehow, sexual ethics, we don't really need to follow, it seems, uh, for most liberals. Definition three is, liberalism is the belief that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the actions of a Christ without a cross. This is according to uh, H. Richard Niebuhr, uh, a scholar in the mid-20th century. Liberalism is the belief that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the, through the actions of a Christ without a cross. Does this say, seem like the same religion as ours? It's because it's not. It's not. And I could go through the whole history of how liberalism started in the Enlightenment uh, through Immanuel Kant and then got baptized by Friedrich Schleiermacher and, and developed in, in Germany through the 18th and 19th hundreds. But we're not going to do that. Uh, the, the bottom line is it's here and, and we're dealing with it. And we're, we're either at the roots or at the branches kind of trying to figure out, is this real religion or is this, is this true Christianity or liberalism? So how do we combat liberalism? Uh, I think this is kind of the question that has been the perpetual question of, of evangelical Christianity in the 20th century and going into the 21st century. And right after I wrote that in my notes, how do we combat liberalism? I think the next question is the people or the ideas. Because Ephesians 6.12 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and spiritual authorities. Um, but a lot of the history of, of Christianity in America in the, in the 20th century has been a fight between liberalism and fundamentalism or conservative Christianity. Um, and this church plant itself is part of what that tension. Um, and what we have seen is what I would call the sneaky liberal um, being influenced from whatever way by liberalism, changing definitions, uh, changing, still saying, yes, I believe that Bible's inspired, that Jesus is the Son of God, that uh, salvation is through Jesus. But what people mean by these things is radically different. Pretending to be evangelical, even though they aren't. Seizing the positions of power in churches and schools. And then pushing conservatives out. If you don't agree with us, then you need to find a different place to be. And that's why we're here. And not in a, in a, in a building that we could have been in. Um, in response to that, obviously this has made people angry. And this has made people say, hey, we are conservatives. Uh, we, we are the true church. Um, we need to fight against liberalism. And one of the main ways has been making lists 
of things that we believe as, fundamental, as fundamentalists. And the main list is the five fundamentals, believing in the inspiration and infallibility of scriptures, believing in the virgin birth, the miracles of Jesus, salvation through Christ's atoning death, and Jesus' literal bodily resurrection. And I agree that this is a great list of things to believe in. I agree that somebody, if somebody's going to be a pastor, they should probably believe these things. If somebody's going to be a teacher in a school, they should probably believe these things. Um, the problem with list making is nobody knows when to stop the list. And this has been a real problem in fundamentalism in the last hundred years. And most of us have been, have been at one point or another called a liberal because um, whatever. This list can go on. Well, Jesus' literal bodily resurrection. Also, only read the King James Bible. Also, only have short hair for men. Also, only believe in a certain end times uh, eschatology, etc. Uh, this can create an atmosphere of suspicion and fear. Are you a liberal? Are you a conservative? And who exactly gets to, to make these decisions? Uh, it can take the emphasis off of the gospel. Ultimately, we're about something. We're not against something. We're about something. And it sure hasn't helped with evangelism because outsiders have seen a lot of fighting and infighting within the church. Um, and rather, we really need to be focused on what is the gospel. We need to know what liberalism is, but our primary focus needs to be what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And my own story, coming back to that, and I'll just go over this quickly. When I came back into the church, I realized I've been very foolish. And I said, Lord, I need to know what is wisdom. And as I looked in scriptures to hear the voice of God, I read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, beginning of wisdom. And so I said, God, teach me the fear of the Lord. And as I prayed for God to teach me how to fear him, what I came to realize is that God is dangerous. Jesus said, do not fear man that can only kill the body, but after that have no power. Rather, fear God who has the power both to, to kill both body and soul in hell. God is dangerous. And we fear him because he is dangerous. We are sinful and he is holy. As we read all throughout the Old Testament and in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is poured out on humanity because of their sin. We fear all sorts of things. We fear earthquakes, volcanoes, diseases, evil men. But the thing we should fear more than anything else is the wrath of God. Because He is holy and we are sinful. But it is not God's heart to destroy us. He is holy. It is His nature. But His heart is to love and to save and that is why it says in 2 Peter 3, that, 3, 9, that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Sorry, in Ezekiel 18, 23. But rather that they should turn and be saved. And John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a message. What an important message. What a tremendous message that salvation is available and it's available only through Jesus Christ. You know, all the religions of the world 
are basically humankind reaching up to God, trying to be good enough, trying to have religious feelings, trying to have good works. But ultimately, within Christianity, we see God reaching down to humans. Because we can't do it, because we're not good enough, He came Himself to die in our place to save us from our sins. At the beginning, I said, the question that rocked me is, is Jesus your Lord? And I'd like to close with this. Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Lord? How do you know? How would you know if Jesus is your Lord? Does Jesus tell you what to do? There are many people that say they are Christians, but they take from the Bible what they want, they leave what they don't want. No king would put up with that. No emperor ruler would put up with that. Does Jesus tell you what to do? If so, he is your Lord. And if not, I would just encourage you, I would urge you to look into Christianity and to look into the religion um, that has given life to so many before you and um, to find answers to the questions that you have and to get to the place where Jesus is your Lord because there is salvation in no other place. There is no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved except in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I just uh, want to close this time uh, by looking to you as the author and perfecter of our faith. We are not the author. We are not the perfecter. We come to you. We're going to celebrate communion here in a second, which is so easy. There's nothing for us to do other than eat and drink, which is probably the most basic human action. Babies can do this. And yet it is through receiving you, that's it, just receiving what you have done, that we have salvation. And Lord, as we take this cup and eat this bread, may we declare that we put our faith in you, not in ourselves, not in our feelings, not in our actions, but in your completed work for us. Because when you hung on the cross and died for us, you paid the price for our sin before a holy God. And we need that payment or else we will die as we should. And we will be separated from you as we deserve. But we declare that we need your help. And it is this that we take in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.